This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We've been talking for weeks now about being a faith prepper. Simply means you look at the situations that are facing us spiritually as a nation. They are getting darker and darker as time goes on. Families are fracturing the just evil and darkness out there seems to be growing at an ever-increasing rate, whether it's in the media or in the government or just basically in our own lives. And so it's time for us to take stock of who we are in Christ and beginning, begin to prepare our faith to maybe face darker times than we ever had before. Understanding that, I would like to read something to you that is kind of a precursor to the message today. This is from Robertson McQuilkin. Um, it's a beginning to one of the books he wrote. And here's what he says. He says, average is not necessarily normal. For example... The average temperature of patients in a hospital may be 100 degrees, but such a temperature is not normal. The average score for a group of friends on a golf course may be 85 for the day, but par may be only 72. So it is with the Christian life. The average experience of church members is far different from the New Testament norms for the Christian life. As you know, we've been talking about what the normal Christian life means. The normal Christian is is characterized by a loving response to ingratitude and indifference, even hostility, and is filled with joy in the midst of unhappy circumstances and with peace when everything goes wrong. The normal Christian overcomes in the battle with temptation, consistently obeys God's law, and grows in self-control, contentment, humility, and courage. Thought processes are so under the control of the Holy Spirit and instructed by scriptures that the normal Christian authentically reflects the attitudes and behaviors of Jesus Christ. God has first place in his life, and the welfare of others takes precedence over personal desires. The normal Christian has power not only for godly living, but for effective service in the church. Above all, he or she has the joy of constant companionship with the Lord. And we would all agree, the normal Christian life. But what is the average Christian experience? Church members typically think and behave very much like the morally upright non-Christians. They are decent enough, but there is nothing supernatural about them. Their behavior is quite explainable in terms of heredity, early environment, or present circumstances. They yield to temptation more often than not, lusting when their body demands it, coveting what they don't have, and taking credit for their accomplishments. The touchstone of their choices is self-interest. And though they have a love for God and others, that love does not control their life. There is little change for the better. In fact, most church members do not expect much improvement and are little concerned by that prospect. Scripture is not exciting Prayer is sometimes laborious and boring, and service in church demonstrates little touch of the supernatural. Above all, their life seems to have an empty core, for it does not center around a constant personal companionship with Christ. Now, you and I all know that's true. We've been in church our whole life. We've been in this church for years and years and years, and and sometimes we come and we expect to hear a message and sing some songs and maybe pray a prayer and catch up with people that we really love, but we really don't expect God to break out. We don't expect something supernatural to take place. And if in your own Bible study time, in your own worship time, God does get hold of you and begins to change something inside of you, and and you feel this, this awakening, this quickening, It's not long before that flame is snuffed out by other believers because none of us likes to think somebody is more spiritual than we are. And, you know, it's it's been that way my whole life. 
Every church that I've been to, they pretty much go through the same thing. I remember growing up, it was a Baptist church. They'd sing some songs we all hated, have a choir special, and we clap. Pastor would get up and preach a message that really wasn't relatable to where I was at the circumstance. Uh, at that time, I would leave, we'd shake hands, it's fun, and then we'd go back and do it again the next week. That's not how faith prepping is done. That's not the faith that's necessary to persevere during tough times. Previously, we've talked about how to learn to pray at all times by letting the Holy Spirit, through God's Word, direct our prayers. We talked about this for several weeks. I'm sending out emails daily to help us do that through the book of Ephesians. From then, we learned how to trust at all times. How do I, how do I trust the Lord? And we talked about exercising our faith, that faith is something that has to grow. Faith is pretty much like a muscle. The more you use it, the more it grows. And unfortunately, faith grows during turbulent times. If you want to have more faith in God's ability to sovereignly meet your financial needs, that usually means you have to get to a situation where you can't meet them. If you want to have faith to believe that God can heal when he wants to heal, that usually means that you're in a situation where the doctors say, there's nothing I can do, because we have a tendency of relying on our own resources first. So we've talked about these issues. We talked last week about everybody lives by faith in something. We talked about the faith it took just to, to come here, the faith it took to sit in that chair and hope that it's going to hold you up. The question is not the amount of faith we have. The question, of course, is the object of that faith. Is that faith in the government? Is that faith in me? Is that faith in, faith in my ability to, to handle this myself? Is, is, is my faith based in the fact that life is always going to be the same as it's always been? What is the object of my faith? Which brings us to a couple questions we need to ask today. How do you go from talking about faith to actually living by faith? You know, like a George Mueller situation or an Apostle Paul or, or, or Christians in other countries that don't have the luxuries that we have. How, how does that happen? To go from the academic to the practical. How can I learn to trust God, not just in the things I can't handle, but to trust Him in all things, good or bad? Is it possible for me to know exactly what His will is for my life? And if, if so... What do I need to do to determine that? What are some practical steps that we need to take in order to surrender all to him? And if I even chose to do that, to actually yield my life to a sovereign God, how do I go about doing that? I mean, is it a mental thing? Is it, do I have to walk an aisle of a church and shake some preacher's hand? Do I get baptized again? Do I take like two pieces of, of bread of communion? What do I do? in order to surrender myself to him. About six months ago, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the Holy Spirit. Actually, we spent a whole year talking about it earlier. But, and so we're not getting into practical steps here. How in the world can I live a life filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, I know that he's in me. I know the book of Ephesians says the Holy Spirit is my deposit. He sealed me. He's my... A guarantee of my future inheritance to come. I know the Holy Spirit resides in me, yet we all know we're not always controlled by him. As a matter of fact, we go our own way, we kind of mess things up, and then we rely back on the Holy Spirit. He comforts us, he teaches us, sometimes he empowers us. But how do I live a life that is filled with him so that I'm relying on his power and his strength at all times? And if you remember when we went through this long study, we, we tried to boil it down into a a couple steps that we can make, spiritual steps, to help us be filled by him. First one was desire. Do you remember? Number one, you must desire to live a life that will please the Lord. If you don't desire to live a life that will please the Lord, the Holy Spirit is not going to fill you. I mean, you're not going to experience his oneness. He's there, but he's not in control because your life is not living the life that pleases the Lord. The promise was in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. The strongest human, of a couple of the strongest human emotions. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the scripture says that they will be filled. That's why they're blessed. The second thing we talked about doing, and this is the hardest one, is you have to be willing to surrender your life totally and irrevocably to the Lord Jesus. I threw the word willing in there, 
and kind of put a little parentheses around the what because it's, it, it softens the punch a little bit. You know, because our question is, all right, I'm willing to surrender my life to him, but I don't know how to do that. Honestly, we don't. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to, how to turn that around. I know that in most circumstances, I'll pray a prayer and I'll surrender my life to Jesus and I'll go outside and snatch it back out of his hands. Or some situation will happen that I need addressed right now and I'll pray and not receive an answer. So God, I gave you a shot. Now it's my turn to handle it my way and I go in and do what I want to do. We all live that way. Now we expect God to be like a, Someone we're texting. I text, he texts back. Doesn't always work that way. Sometimes his timing, phrases, most of the time in my life, his timing is different than my timing. He takes longer than I want him to. And then I'm forced with the situation like, um, you know, like Saul. I waited for you and you didn't come, so we're worshiping anyway. Doesn't work that way. This is the hardest part. How to surrender my life to him, which is what we're going to talk about today. Romans 12, 1 and 2, that I spent quite a bit of time on a couple of weeks ago, deals with that issue. I'm just going to go through it briefly. I beg you, Paul says, I urge you. You know, the word beseech to us means, okay, I don't really know what that means. Beg is different. It means the same thing. I beg you, therefore, brethren. On what basis? God's mercy. What he's already done for you. It's you, my job, I present, not my mind or my will or my volition, but I present my flesh as a living sacrifice to him. I surrender my flesh to him. First objection, my flesh is carnal, my flesh is decadent, my flesh is full of sin. There's nothing about me that God wants. He addresses the first one. You are holy. I will accept your offering. As a matter of fact, whatever you offer me, no matter how bad you've made your life, it will be acceptable to me, and it's something you need to do. It's reasonable to do. It's expected for you to do based on what I have already done for you and giving you the mercies of God. So simple. Then what? I have to act out on that. It's not just a a spiritual thing where I just pray a prayer and we're done. There's an actual flowing out of that spiritual change into our everyday life, that I will no longer be conformed to this world. But I want to be. I don't want to do all the bad things they do, but I want to do a lot of the things they do because I don't want the world to, to laugh at me. I mean, everybody else gets to watch Games of Thrones. Why can't I watch Games of Thrones if I just take some of the bad stuff out? Or everybody else wants to do this. Why can't I do that too? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. The word here is where we get the word metamorphosis from. Be changed into something different by the way you think. One of the keys to surrendering your life to the Lord is a change in the way you think by the renewing of your mind. And then, of course, the promise, I'm able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I got that. What else? Well, you need to ask the Lord to reveal to you any sin that you've committed in your life. And this is the hard part because he will. Some of the ones that you're very willing to address and some of the ones that you're not so willing to address because they're personal and they hurt. And you're to claim God's forgiveness in 1 John 1.9. If you remember, we talked about that. We have uh, an if-then promise. We do one part, God does the other. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And if I confess my sins, then he promises to forgive me of my sins and begin the sanctification process to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. If I don't confess my sins, then there's no sins for him to forgive, and the cleansing process doesn't begin because I'm still committing the same sins I did. We talked about that. It's called spiritual breathing. That once you experience this fullness of the Holy Spirit, you maintain that fellowship with him. By as soon as you sin, you stop, you confess it, you breathe out a confession to God, you breathe back in the the forgiveness and the wonder and the joy. Do you remember all that? And then, of course, there's a time. 
there's a time that we have to realize that we are filled with the Holy Spirit not because of what we've done, but we're filled with the Holy Spirit on the same basis we were saved by faith. Faith in the command of God and faith in the promise of God. The command of God, be filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5. The promise of God, that if we pray anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know if he hears us, he answers our prayers. So I, I'm asking, I'm following these steps, I'm believing, and whether I feel it or not, I'm resting on the faith that God will accomplish what he promised to do. And then there comes a time of reckoning. This is the important part. This is where you say, okay, I have to make a faith declaration now. I have to decide to do something now. As for me in my house, today we're going to serve the Lord. Colonel Travis and the story of the Alamo that I can never get out of my mind since Justice and I went there a couple times. Calls all the people down before the final battle, draws a line in the sand and says, choose. You can stay on that side and you can leave and you can live your life to be an old man, no shame. But those of you who will cross the line, who will make that decision to stand and fight, all of them died. Choose. Today is the day you choose. You drive a stake in the ground no longer. And that's where the prayer comes from. By faith, you ask him to do exactly what he promises to do. I've confessed my sins, so I've made myself to the best of my ability, a a willing recipient of his filling of the Holy Spirit. I have a desire more than anything to, to be filled by him. I believe in his word, and so I begin to pray. And I just gave you a model prayer. Do you remember? Lord, I need you. I hunger and thirst for a more vital relationship with you. I admit that I've been in control of my life, and as a result, I have sinned against you. Thank you for forgiving my sin through Christ's death on the cross for me, and I'm believing that by faith. I now confess and turn from my sin and surrender the control of my life to the Lord Jesus. By faith, I ask you to fill me with the Holy Spirit as you commanded me to be filled, because you promised to fill me if I ask according to your will. I pray this in the authority and name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to demonstrate my faith, I'm asking you, even though there may be no physical manifestations that makes my faith rest in this chill that I had, rather than God's chosen word, and I'll thank you for filling me with your Holy Spirit and for taking control of my life. Amen. Do you remember? Do you remember? Surrendering your life to the Lord works exactly the same way. The hardest part of this, how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, is not the confession of sin, it's the surrendering. You know, we surrender our life and snatch it back up. We surrender our life, and if it doesn't go exactly the way we want to, as quickly as we want to, as well as we want to, then we're going to handle it ourselves. I mean, God gave me a mind, he expects me to use it. God doesn't want me in a dependent relationship with my father. Instead, what he wants me in is like an advisory council relationship with my father, that I'll do everything I want. I'll ask him for advice. If I mess up really bad, I'll ask him to bail me out. But otherwise, it's all based on me. And the church functions that way. I function that way. You probably function that way most of the time. Hence, we have this lack of supernatural in our life. And it all comes from just surrender. Just to surrender. Which is what I want to share with you today. And I want you to listen very carefully. Because if you surrender your life to him, Or you begin the process, and I'm not asking you to do it now. That's what the sheets are for. Go home tonight. If you surrender your life to him, you will give yourself the greatest present you've ever had in your life. Because the sovereign creator of the universe wants to be in control of your life. And I don't know about you, but he does a much better job at running my life than I do. How in the world can I think I can do better than God himself? Surrender. What does it mean? It's a military term. And it it has negative connotations in our culture. When When one army surrenders to another, they admit defeat. 
and defeat is bad. You got the, you know, you got Ulysses S. Grant and uh, Robert E. Lee at Appomattox, and one guy takes his sword out and lays it down, and he surrenders, and the other guy lords it over him, and now you'll do exactly what I say. It's a bad deal. If you've got a boxing match, a championship boxing match, and it's a 15th round and a 13th round, the, the guy in the corner refuses to answer the bell. I can't come out anymore. I can't fight anymore. I'm done. I surrender. He loses the belt. If you're playing chess and you realize it's over, the one chess man just lays his king on its side. I, I'm cowered down. I surrender. We're done. In our culture, it's like a defeat. It's like something terrible. And none of us ever want to give up anything to anybody. We have this thing inbred in us from the fall of Adam, and especially in the nation that we live, that we're in charge. We make the decisions. You know, I don't want to be in a dependent relationship to anyone. But surrender means to yield, to give up, to submit, abandon, relinquish, cede, wave, or capitulate. Gosh, we don't ever want those things said about us. Well, that person capitulated to the dark side. There's always something negative about that. But in the Christian life, it is the key to bearing his fruit, to not going your own way, but to rest in the vine, to be attached. I'm surrendering my free will and my independence to go anywhere I want and die, to be able to stay connected to the vine and to bear his fruit. I rest, I relax in him. From the Christian perspective, the word surrender means to relinquish ownership, listen carefully, of what we think or consider ours. But nothing is ours. Nothing. It all belongs to him. The very breath that we take, the fact that my heart from some energy science doesn't understand keeps beating until it finally stops is a gift from him. The things that we consider ours are our property. I earned it. It's a, I'm paying off. This actually belongs to me. My rights, my time, my decisions, what I want to do in the future, my independence, basically everything about my life belongs to me. And so we've been taught in the church and been taught in the culture in which we live that we're no longer slaves or do losses or bond servants of Christ, but we're independent contractors that we work when we want, we expect to be paid for the work that we're doing, and then when we're done, we just move on to something else. I get a 1099 at the end of the year. I don't, I'm, I'm no longer a slave to you, but if you will look in the Scripture, every time, almost every time Paul and the apostles describe themselves, they describe themselves not as independent contractors, not as employees, not even as children, but as voluntary slaves, a bond slave. Of someone who had freedom, but chose voluntarily to place themselves back under subjection of their master. In the Old Testament time, if a man was a slave, and a, let's say, for example, I'm a slave and Karen's a slave, and I married Karen, and now we have children, and all the children belong to the master, but for some reason, I now earn my freedom. So I'm now free to do what I want, but the family and everything that I love still belongs to the master. Now I have a choice. I can go out on my own and make my own life, or I can stay because of everything that I hold dear is here. And if I go back to the master and say, you know, I've chosen, even though you've given me freedom, I've chosen to remain a slave, they would take my ear and they would put it on the, the doorpost and they would drive an all through it, and everybody that would see this hole in my ear would realize that I'm a freed slave who's voluntarily decided to stay under subjection to my master. That's the term Paul uses for the church as bond slaves and bond servants of Christ. And you can only be that if you learn how to surrender your will to him. And it is a choice. And it is a harrowing choice. And it's something that, that we struggle with because it fights against our very nature. Let me um, give you the classic verse on surrender. Galatians 2.20, everybody knows this verse. Really simple. I, past tense, have been crucified with Christ. I have identification with him. When he died, I died. His life was over, my life was over. There's everything that I have is in Christ. So since I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, 
My desires don't matter. And you know, if I'm dead, you can't hurt my feelings. You can't make me mad because dead people have no emotions. I've been surrendered, identified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but this new reality has taken place and Christ now lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I don't live my own way doing what I want to do and calling my own shots and here's where I want to go to college, here's who I want to marry, here's where I want to live, all the decisions that I want to make every single day that benefit me. Instead, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Classic passage on surrender. And we would look at that and go, I have been crucified with Christ positionally, but uh, you know, Christ lives in me as my counselor, as my big brother, as my you know Google search engine I can get information from. But as far as calling all the shots, that's up to me. And then we wonder why our lives are not bearing the fruit that He designed for us. Best picture of this I find is in Genesis chapter three. I want you to think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created to live in an independent relationship with the Lord, and he met all their needs, did he not? I mean, every animal that came by, he named them, and, and Adam and Eve were placed in his garden, and they had such intimate fellowship with the Lord that it says that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, having conversations with Adam and Eve like you and I are having right now. You can have everything. I've given you everything. There's just one thing I don't want you to do because I'm your, I'm your father and I'm your protector and I know what, how damaging it will be to you. You may eat of anything that you want except from the fruit of this tree. If you eat of the fruit of this tree, this is what will happen to you. They had a dependent relationship with the father and they could have chosen to remain under their, his authority, but they were just... Misled, they were swindled, they, they were deceived, they freely chose to go their own way through disobedience. You know, God, I know how good you are and how gracious you are and how wonderful you are, and this is incredible. You've given me everything that I need, and, and, but I'm not interested in that anymore. I have this, this inner nature, this inner desire that wants to go my own way, to chafe at any boundaries that are put on me. And, and I must not trust your character enough to think you really care about me because I think my way is better. And so they ate. And once they sinned, I always find this amazing, they did not fall on their face before God and ask for forgiveness. By the way, do you think you would have forgiven them? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it may not even have turned out the way it did, but they didn't. Everybody blamed somebody else. Oh, uh, it was this woman. It was this woman that you gave me. I told you I didn't want the woman. I was really happy with Lassie over here, but you gave me this woman, and, and, and she did it. If it wasn't for her, who you gave to me because I didn't ask, this wouldn't have happened. Woman? No, no, no. It was a snake. It was a serpent. I mean, I was deceived, and nobody took responsibility for their actions. And nobody repented. Isn't that amazing? Two people created in all the earth with that kind of fellowship with the Lord, and when they sin, there's no repentance. None. And of course, we realize how disastrous the end result was. So Adam was uh, living a, a dependent life, separated from God, worth it? Well, no, I had two boys. One killed the other. You know, I, you know I, I got old. Life, life's hard. I mean, there's destruction, and it was not that many generations, 1,500 years after Adam's creation, the world was so wicked, God had to wipe it out with a flood. Do you remember? Because there's no surrender. There's no, there's no desire. There's no, I really believe, God, that you're so good then instead of just telling people about it and just having word studies about it, I'm willing to actually act on it. So how do we do this? It's really simple. Actually, it's profoundly difficult, but it's really simple to explain, really hard to do. How do we do it? You need to understand, first of all, you have a triune God, and he created us as triune creatures. In other words, we have a... Uh, we have a soul, we have a, we have a body, we have a spirit, we have a mind. We're, we're different. 
In other words, when our body dies, we don't die. When you go to a funeral, and I've shared this with you before, you see the body there, and it looks kind of the same, but there's something missing. There's, there's something gone. Since we are a triune person with a mind and a will and a body, when you surrender your life to him, you have to surrender all three. If you surrender just one of those, it doesn't work. It just it means the other two parts of you are fighting against the one part that wants to do right. You know, you're transformed, Romans chapter 12 says, by the renewing of your mind. That's, that's one aspect of it. But I'm told to lay my body down as a living sacrifice. So, so there's the body part, and I have to have a desire and a will and a volition to be able to do that. So when you surrender to him, the first thing you've got to do is surrender your mind. The way you think. Now listen. I talked about this a, a couple weeks ago when I handed out a, or I went over a group of uh, questions, controversial issues that all Christians struggle with. Do you remember them? About um, gay marriage or about uh, women in the workplace or about how we educate our kids or all the kind of stuff that Christians are divided. And when I started out with that, everybody's like, yeah, I really agree. And then all of a sudden it starts getting real personal. And, well, that kind of affects me. And, and, and in my opinion is this. And the reality is that we have a mind that says, I know what I want to do. I know I think what is right. I don't care what the Scripture says because my circumstances are different. But they're not. The Bible tells us exactly how we're supposed to live in every single area of our life. And we have a choice. And the choice is to surrender and submit ourselves to what the Scripture says are to go our own way. And this happens to be the hardest part of all. Because I'm not going to do anything unless I'm convinced in my mind it's the right thing to do. That's where the battle takes place, in your mind. You know, you have Christians who struggle with, well, the Bible says creation took like this, and, and uh, I believe in evolution. Well, why? Both of them are based on faith. You have faith in Scripture, and you have faith on some theory that, that man has put together, and you have evidence pretty much, but both sides will say you have evidence for both. So what are you going to believe? It's your choice. It's your choice. It's all based on faith. I mean, we don't even know for sure that uh, George Washington was the first president of the United States. We believe it because there are documents that say there is, and there's pictures of that, and I said so in our history books, but we even accept all of that on faith. So it's your mind. How do you, why do you handle that? How do you conform your mind to be like Christ? For as a man thinks in his heart, that's who he is. You believe people are out to get you, you can act that way. You believe that, that everybody owes you a living, you're going to be a selfish person. You believe that the idea of being a Christian is just to receive and never give, nobody wants to be around you. When you're like that, if you think the purpose in life is for you to find your personal happiness, then you're going to spend your entire life doing that and end up with zero fruit spiritually. If you believe God is everything and God is all and, and all the things that we claim to believe in truth, it will change who you are. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. And when you surrender your mind in the way you think, it, this is the hardest part. So you sit down, for example, and you take a sheet of paper out and you say, Lord, I want to surrender my life to you. I want to surrender my mind and the way I think. I need my mind changed. I need my mind renewed, like it says in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. What do I do? And you start looking, not necessarily is the way you think, but you start looking at the way you feel about certain things. And this is what happened to me. I'm just writing these things down and I realized, you know, it's just based on my feelings, it's based on my wants, it's based on what I would really like to happen. I'm imputing the worst characteristics to this person versus the best because why? I'm sovereign? No, I'm just me. And, and you have to one by one realize that God is so much higher, so much greater, so much more wondrous than we are. Ephesians chapter 4 says, but you've not... So learn Christ Jesus, if indeed you have heard of him and been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. So what do I do? That uh, I, these are things that I need to do. I put off 
concerning your former conduct, conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to his deceitful lust. This is not something God does for us. It's something that I have to do. Continuing, and I'm renewed in the spirit of my mind. Of my mind. And then I put on a new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So I make a decision. Lord, I want to live a sanctified life. I want to get rid of everything in my life that is offensive to you. I prayed about it. You revealed some things to me. I want to be faithful with that. But the only way I'm able to do that is to have my inward spirit, that small s, not large s, my inward spirit renewed in my mind. I have to think different. I have to approach people different. I have to understand the sovereignty of God and how he deals with everything in our life. I have to trust. It's a renewing of our mind. Once that is done, and I'm, again, don't want it to sound like it's something you'll do in three minutes, then there's a practical application of that. I surrender my body, my flesh, which includes my wants, my desires, my needs, my sincerely held convictions, just what makes me feel good, just what I think is important. Romans 12, 1 and 2, we've already looked at it. That I, to yield myself, I'm to surrender, I'm to present as a living sacrifice my flesh. My flesh, my desire for revenge, my desire to always be right, my desire to be liked and loved by people, my desire to have other people applaud me, other people think you're wonderful, other people appreciate me. And we're at Christmas time, and you know how many... How many parents giving, 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 give, hoping to get some appreciation, and sometimes it doesn't even happen? All those things are, are desires that my flesh craves that are all met in Christ. I want you to watch here how Paul uses this concept of us being the temple of God in verse number 3 and later on in verse number 6. Watch this. He says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. The context here, of course, is doing away with sin. How can you have sin and commit adultery? Don't you know that your flesh is a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know that you're the temple of God, which makes your flesh a dwelling place of God himself? And then he goes on in verse 6 to say this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of God, or temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And if that's the case, whom you are from God, that you are not your own, when Christ redeemed us, he took ownership of us, and what we do is we snatch that ownership back from him and to go our own way in rebellion. He says, for I was bought with a price, and if I'm bought with a price, I should sacrifice my body and my fleshly desires on his altar as a living sacrifice and glorify God in your body and in my spirit, which belong to him. And if you could get your mind around God having ownership, it changes everything. I surrender my mind. And this will be a struggle. At least it was with me. And I surrender my flesh. And you will practice spiritual breathing when it comes to that, by the way. And then I need to surrender my will. What I want, what I desire, what I think is important. There's a lot of verses I could share that with. I just want to share with you one. It's at the end of the book of Revelation. There's this big... I mean, everybody's coming and everybody's embracing what Christ has done. And this is, you know, his kingdom and all that. And he says, and the spirit and the bride says, come and let him who hears say, come and let him who thirst come. And there's a caveat here. Whoever desires, wouldn't everybody desire to drink freely from the water of life? Whoever desires, how bad do you want it? You know, we live in the Laodicean church age, which of course is the lukewarm age, which means we're doing it ourselves and everything is fine and we think we're doing okay because we're rich and wealthy and need nothing, but he sees us as poor and wretched, blind and naked, so much so that he vomits the church out of his mouth because we find in Revelation 3.20 that Christ is on the outside of the church knocking on the door wanting to come in. 
If you will open the door, I will come in to you and we will have fellowship, we'll have communion, we'll have a oneness together. We've all been raised in this church age to believe that what is average is normal, but it's not. And this year, before this year ends, your total Christian life can be different. This idea of surrender is found all through Scripture. Almost every passage that I'm looking at, which is, you know, take every thought captive through the obedience of Christ. Well, that's a surrender. A walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. That's a choice. That's a surrender. Over and over again, we find it's all full of that. Let me just give you a couple in closing. Very familiar passages. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts himself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought captive to what? My desire? No, to the obedience of Christ. There's a standard, and I take every thought captive to line up under his word. This is a surrender of the mind. You know, I'm, 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 I'm choosing to believe what he says is true versus what I think is true. Luke 9, 23 and 24, Jesus talking to his disciples. If anyone desires, in other words, everybody doesn't have to go, but if you desire to come after me, there's an action that needs to take place. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There's two words in here. There's desire and cross. There's desire and deny yourself. And this is a surrender of both the will, my desire, and my flesh, and my body. Over and over again, we we see these in here. It's almost like God is saying to the Proverbs, Steve, give me your heart. Give me your where, where, where your passions lie. Mind, will, and emotion. Give me your heart. And let your eyes observe my way. And you can see how I live, and then you live accordingly. Well, how do I do that? You surrender your will to me. Remember this passage? You trust me with all the heart I'm asking you to give me. And you don't lean on your own way of thinking, your own way of understanding how you think it ought to be. In all your ways, good or bad, acknowledge me, and I will take care of everything for you. We have a picture of Christ here. And this picture of Christ in Philippians chapter 2 is nothing but a surrendering of his will to the Father. Let this mind, the surrendering of the mind, be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. I need to think like Christ. I need to value what Christ values. All right, Paul, what is that? Who, being a form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God? Well, how did your change of mind flow out in your flesh. Oh, I may he made himself of no reputation. I don't care what people think about me. I have a calling from God. Taking on the form of a voluntary slave. The very form that Paul says, that's who I am. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself. Well, that'll bust your pride up, won't it? He humbled himself and came obe- became obedient to the point of death, even this horrific death on the cross. If you look at this picture of Christ, every bit of it is surrendering my will, my desire, my mind. James talks about it. Be a doer of the word. Don't, don't, just, don't just listen to it. But surrender your will and do what it says. If you want the enemy to flee from you, submit yourself to God. That's the first thing. If I submit myself to God, then I'll resist the devil and and he will flee. James, again, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord over and over and over again. These are verses that point to this surrendering of ourself to him. And there's many more. Now, as I'm preparing these messages, actually what happens is God prepares me, and then I'm just sharing it with you. But as I'm preparing these messages, I was struggling with this. 
because there's certain things in my life I want to control. And it's not that I don't trust him. I just don't trust him to do them the way I want them done. Does that make sense? That somehow he may have a different outcome involved to something that I think is important to me. So what I'd rather you do, God, is I'd rather you just bless what I have in mind rather than totally surrendering it to you. And the question that came to me is this question I want to end with, with you. And I want you to think about it really deeply. If we believe God is good, by the way, do you? And if you believe he is sovereign, a good, sovereign God, can you think of one reason, one reason, that we would not want to surrender our will to him? I could. Pride. Just pride. Just sin. I would rather have less than you wanted for me, God, if I could make that decision myself. God, I know what your will is in this situation, but I ain't going to do it. I I, I ain't going to do it because I know if I do, it's going to cost me this, or I'm going to have to humble myself and say I'm sorry, or I'm going to have, it's going to affect me in a bad way, and I don't trust you or believe you enough to realize that you're going to bring some good out of that. I've grown up in church like that my whole life. Every pastor I know kind of walks that same path. And I'm tired of it. Aren't you? Tired of it. That if it's true that God has something marvelous for each one of us, then all it means is that we have to surrender our will to him and whatever he tells us, no matter how painful or worse than that, no matter how wrong, We think he is. You just don't understand God. Really? Would you ever say that to him? God, wait, 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 wait. You're seeing it wrong, God. Really? But that's what we do. Every single day we go our own way and not his way. God lays out in his word every single decision that you and I are supposed to make. And he gives us the Holy Spirit that will allow him to take those things in his word and quicken them to us so that we never have to walk out there alone. We are children and slaves of our master. And our master calls all the shots. He's responsible for taking care of all our needs, including defending us if things go bad. And the only reason why we wouldn't do this is because of pride. Now, here's what I'm asking you to do. Pass out a sheet. I want you to go home. Spend some time alone, quiet with the Lord, and start asking him to reveal to you things about your relationship with certain areas of your life that need to be surrendered. Lord, how about my relationship with you? What are, what are some areas that I need to, to, to let go of, to, to just trust you with? And he'll tell you. So start writing them down, one after another. I, I, will, I will promise you, if you ask him, he will tell you. Lord, how about my relationship with my spouse? How am I supposed to change about that? How am I supposed to think differently about that? Lord, what is your will in this situation? Am, am I violating your will? Am, am I selfish? Am I, am I? What am I doing here, Lord? Show me what I need to do with my spouse or with my family, or with my friends, or my relationship with work. How about my relationship with my rights and my wants and my desires and what I think are important? And you start writing down your sincerely held convictions, which may or may not be biblical. It's something he'll reveal to you. And then you have a choice. And the choice is to surrender that to him or to hold on to it and just limp on like the church is doing today. The hardest one for me. How about my relationship with me? With me? Gosh. And I start writing on the other side of the page. Relationship with me. What I want, what I desire, what's important to me, how I want to do this. And God, I just, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to go there. I don't want to say that. I don't want to give that. I, whatever. And then other areas that God has spoken to you and just write these down. And then one by one, 
begin surrendering them to him. Will you be 100% successful? If you are, then you're better than me and anybody else I've ever read about. You will struggle. You will find that you will surrender those areas to him. Lord, I want to surrender my anger to him. And you'll get in a car and somebody will cut you off and the anger's right back. Right back. And then all of a sudden the guilt and condemnation hits. Stop. Practice spiritual breathing. Lord, that was wrong. I was decided, I've surrendered that area of my life to you. I have no right to be anger, angry, Lord, because of the mercy that you've given me. You have the right to be angry at me. And you have the right not to forgive me, but my job is to forgive others. And you confess that sin, you breathe it out, and you inhale his, his wondrous and his goodness and his forgiveness, and you rock on down the road. And little by little, you will find that the areas that you struggle with now will become strengths in your life that God will use to be able to bless others. If you don't do this, if you don't do this, I have a, um, I have a mantra for you. And I get this from the multi-level marketing company called Herbalife. When I was uh, young in our marriage, that was the, mar- the program that we got involved with versus Amway and Mary Kay or some of the others. And, and here's what they said. If things are going to change... You've got to change. Can't blame others. Can't expect others to be different. If things are going to change, you've got to change. Man, there's so much spiritual truth in that. It's shocking. If you want your life to change, if you want to have an intimacy with the Lord like you've never had before, if you want him to allow you to bear his fruit to abundance, then you have to change. And how do I change? I let go of me and I give it to him. If you do that, I promise you, by the authority of Scripture, your life will change. If you refuse, and tomorrow's going to be just like today, which is probably just like yesterday, and day after tomorrow may not be any better, may actually get worse, and we're just going to limp on, we're going to get old, we're going to die, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to look at all the stuff that we invested our life in and realize it means nothing, absolutely nothing rather than understanding who he is. Amen? So give yourself a Christmas present this year and give your life to him. Let me pray.